Hey guys and ladies, welcome back to the Spirits Guide podcast. I am Rich, your guide to the intoxicating spirits world. I can't believe we're on episode two, full-length episodes. This is the bookend Anthony Bourdain Roadrunner episode. I want to start out by thanking all of you guys who listened to episode one. You have no idea how you truly inspired this episode. As much as I was inspired by the documentary, as much as I am inspired by Anthony Bourdain, the response and the amount of you out there who were listening to the first episode is what kind of solidified it for me that I had to do this episode. I mentioned a couple times during the podcast that I wasn't really sure if I was going to do it. I've recorded this episode two or three times now um, in from much different angles. And quite honestly, it was very dark and it was very heavy and it was hard to kind of get through. And I recorded a different version where it just didn't really come across as the way I wanted it to. And I was going to scrap it all together and just move on. But the response I got from that first episode just kind of reinforced to me that I had to do this for me. Um... And ultimately, that's why I'm doing this podcast is I'm doing it for me and in the hopes that you guys out there are connecting to this and connecting to me and we can build a community. Um, yeah, that's that's why we're here. So I'm going to taste four gins on the podcast. I kind of break the documentary down in a couple ways. I don't really go into... You know, the darkness of it, I want to keep things upbeat and fun, but interesting. And I really do want to stimulate conversation. So as with everything, you know, I want to share these gins with you guys. And then hopefully you guys go like, oh, that sounds good. I'd like to try it. And if you've never seen the documentary, hopefully by me talking about it, it makes you want to go out and watch this. Uh, it's, it's just, it's fantastic. If you have no idea who Anthony Bourdain is, I feel like it's an important documentary. If you know him as a travel host and not as a chef, it's worth the watch. If you know him as a chef and not as a travel host, it's worth the watch. It's just, it's a great piece of film. Um, Yeah, it can be a little heavy and a little dark. All right, we'll get into the episode again. If you guys like what I'm doing here, and we're kind of off to this quirky little start, but I promise as we get going things get more lively uh and we're just going to be all over the place so if you like what i'm doing here please go to spotify go to the podcast page follow the podcast give a rating and then follow on facebook and instagram you can leave reviews of the podcast on both platforms uh instagram i post a lot of stuff about you know not only what i'm drinking but what i'm watching what I'm reading, what I'm listening to, all of that, because there's so much more that goes into just drinking spirits. And I mentioned it a few times in the podcast. You can email me direct at thespiritsguide89 at gmail.com. If you've got a show idea, if you've got a sample that you want me to try, you're curious about my thoughts on it. If there's something I've drank on the show, whether it's sample size or in these episodes, that you're like, hey, I'd like to try that. I'll do everything I can to get a sample to you. 
But more importantly, if you're out there and you're feeling fucked up, I'm not a therapist, but you can shoot me an email and be like, hey, man, I don't feel right sometimes. I can at least be an outlet for you to vent to, and I'll try to help you get to, you know, connect with people to talk to who are therapists. Uh, We drink spirits. It's a fun kind of hobby to have, but it can also be a dangerous one as well. You know, and Bourdain's life really does kind of delve into the addiction side of things. So if you're out there and you're feeling like, hey, maybe I got a problem with this, it's okay to put the bottle down for a day, a week, a month, forever. If you got to quit, it's okay. We can all still be part of the same community. Even if we don't drink, it doesn't make you weaker or any less of anything. And again, you can reach out to me and I will try to connect you as best as I can with some people who can maybe you know help you deal with it. The important thing is, is if there's anything going on with you that's negative, that's bringing you down, whether it's me, whether it's anybody, whether it's a friend, uh, you know, whoever it is, it's okay to talk about these things. And I think that's the big thing that this documentary really kind of shows is like those sort of stigmas about mental health or addiction that we don't talk about them especially as men, that we keep these things inside and we tough it out, those days are gone. Please be healthy. Mental health is just as important as physical health. So if you need somebody to talk to or you need somebody to help you get through that, please feel free to reach out to me. I'll do what I can uh, to help you. And if not me, reach out to somebody. It's okay to talk about it. All right, a little deep, a little dark. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. Again, thank you all so much. I am completely humbled by the fact that you're out there and listening and digging the same things that I'm into. I love it. I want to keep this going. I want to take this journey all over the place. And much like my hero, Anthony Bourdain, I want to experience it all. And I want to experience it all with humans. Enjoy the episode. I'll talk to you guys soon. Cheers. All right. <clears throat> All right. So here we are. Wasn't really sure if I was going to do this, uh, how this was going to come about. But this is probably the second or third recording of the Anthony Bourdain Roadrunner episode, kind of the companion episode to the first episode I did, which was on Kitchen Confidential. Talking about the influence that Anthony Bourdain had on my life. Now, much like the first episode, I've recorded this a couple of times. The last time, and you'll hear it talked about in another episode, I really like the way it came across. One, it's not hard for this documentary and talking about this documentary, especially from a personal perspective, it's not hard for this to get really, really dark, really, really fast. And that's not what I want this to be. Um, much like everything I do here in the podcast, what I want to do is stimulate conversation. I want to bring people together. You know, I, I love dialogue because the more we talk to each other, the more we're, we're connecting. 
and I didn't really want that conversation to be dark. So I recorded it and then I scrapped it and then we re-recorded it and we were trying to come across as maybe too smart and so knowledgeable and maybe even a touch kind of pretentious in, in the way that the approach was. And I kind of scrapped that again because, again, it was dark and it was pretentious. It was a bit too much. That being said, hopefully sometime in the near future, I can extract some of that initial recordings of Kitchen Confidential and some of the initial recordings of the Roadrunner episode, because there really is some gold in there, uh, just as an overall episode. It was really, it was really hard for me to listen back. And in the point of everything that I want to do here, is one, reach people and stimulate conversation and dialogue. Um, but I also want to create the podcast that I actually want to listen to. Uh, and like I said, listening to those earlier recordings back as a whole uh, was just not something that I, I really wanted to listen to uh, the more I went through it. But there were parts of it that were absolute gold. Uh, there were things that I recorded with my friend, the BSO, who does, you know, you guys have heard some sample size episodes with him in there. He's a wealth of knowledge. Uh, he's my little brother. Uh, but even together, the two of us just couldn't make it sound the way that I wanted to make it sound for you guys out there listening. All right. So before we get too kind of dull, blah, um, we are the Spirits Guide, so I am going to be drinking spirits. And much like the way I designed it in the recordings before of Roadrunner, I'm going to be drinking gin today. Now, there's a reason that I'm drinking gin, because to me, All the Pieces Matter, which, by the way, is a great book, one of my favorite shows of all time. Uh, maybe the best show ever made is The Wire. Uh, and there's a great book on that series called All the Pieces Matter from a great line that was in the show. Uh, and it's something that really does resonate with me that I do feel like all the pieces matter. So we already kind of know why Anthony Bourdain, but why gin? Well, because gin at times can be harsh. At times for some people is not necessarily approachable. But for those of us who get it and like it, we love it. It's very approachable. It's very interesting. It's very layered. It's very complex. It's very versatile. And at times, not even at times, all the time, gin is more than what it seems and what we have perceived it as. Over my years of working retail and restaurants, anytime anybody ever pitched me on a new gin, their, their kind of BS line was always the same. It makes a great gin and tonic. And my response would always be, who cares? If I'm just drinking gin and tonic, I can buy some new Amsterdam and some Schweppes, bang it out that way. Gin has far more complexity, far more layers, and it is far more interesting than something to just dump in tonic water. That being said, if you like gin and tonics and no knock on it, obviously it's a classic highball cocktail. It's a great refreshing drink to have, but if you're going to drink gin and tonics, 
at least drink good tonic water, uh, fever tree or better. And I don't know that there's anything better than fever tree. I don't have any here because we're not talking about fever tree. We're talking about gin. Uh, but if you're going to do gin and tonics, at least use good tonics. So here we are. We're going to talk about gin. We're going to talk about Roadrunner, the documentary about Anthony Bourdain. Now, kind of the whole premise of this episode one, episode two, is to show my connection, my inspiration to Bourdain. And with that, all the gins that I'm going to taste are kind of inspired by connections to people or places or things uh, that are important to me that kind of make me who and what I am. So I'm going to start with a simple one, uh, simple connection-wise, and this is the botanist gin. Now, simple in the connection of the botanist is made at Brooklotti, which is my favorite scotch producer. Uh, you know, I talk a lot about bourbon, love my bourbons, but my original whiskey love was scotch. Scotch to me is just elegance, style, sexy, finesse. Brooklotti is the best to me. Starting to drink whiskey with my best friend Murph, we drank a lot of Brooklotti. And some of the, the bottlings we were drinking years ago are not even available anymore. And right now it's basically kind of the three core bottlings of Brooklotti. The Port Charlotte, which is heavily peated. Um, the Scottish Barley or the Classic Lottie, it is known, which is unpeated. And then they do the Islay Barley, which is more of a terroir-driven scotch. But also at the property, they make the botanist. So the botanist and Brooklady are owned by Remy Quantro. And Remy Quantro has a representative in the marketplace where I'm at. His name is Jim Sullivan. He's a good friend of mine. So again, connections with, you know, being part of the spirits world and the, the industry of some of the great people that I have gotten to meet over the years. Uh, Jim Sullivan is just one of the the many people that are special and near and dear to me that I always enjoy seeing and hanging out with and having conversations about the business with. So again, strong human connections, strong brand connections. And really, when it comes to the botanist gin, there's kind of nothing simple about this. Like I said, it's made by Brooklady. So it's an Islay gin. It's a Scottish gin. There's not a ton of that around. I don't know of any other ones from the Islay region. The botanical blend was put together by Jim McEwen, who, if you've seen any of the documentaries on Scotch, Jim McEwen is... He's like the Dave Pickerel of Scotch. You know, he's on the Mount Rushmore of some of the most important people in the history of Scotch. He's the one who revived the Brooklady Distillery. Uh, spent some time at Bowmore before that. Just an absolute god in the world of Scotch. So, here's what I can tell you about Botanist. It's a 92-proof gin. It's a dry style 
which basically means there's no sugar added to it, no sweeteners. Here's what makes it cool. There are 22 local botanicals that kind of augment the nine berries, bark, seeds, and uh, peels that are kind of used to make this gin. Uh, the botanicals take seven months to harvest and dry because they all kind of bloom at different times. And here is the exhausting list of all the botanicals that go into the botanist gin. Are you ready? Sit, take a deep breath. I'm going to need one to recite these. Here we go. Apple mint, chamomile, creeping thistle, downy birch, elderflower, gorse. I'm not even sure I know what gorse is, but it's in there. Hawthorn, heather, juniper. By the way, all gin has to have juniper in it. It's what makes gin gin. Uh, and the only real regulation is it has to have some sort of juniper flavor and character. Uh, ladies bed straw. I don't know what the hell that is, uh, but clearly it's very Scottish. Lemon balm, meadow sweet, mugwort, red clover, spearmint, sweet Sicily, bog myrtle, tansy, watermint, white clover, wild thyme, and wood sage a lot going on in this gin and when you smell it you get all of it so as i sniff and, and get ready to sip this um sort of the intro into what it is that i'm talking about here this is bourdain roadrunner it's the documentary about basically what happens to his life kind of from kitchen confidential on until the unfortunate end. Here's what I can tell you about the documentary. It was something that friends of Bourdain wanted to do and wanted to put together and kind of knew that he they were too close to him to really kind of be the creative force behind this. So they needed a great storyteller. And it's important to make this point uh, that the director of the documentary is in fact a storyteller. You're just telling a story that's true about somebody's actual life. You know, the difference between fiction and nonfiction isn't the style that the story is told. It's whether or not it's factual or not. This becomes an important point the more we talk about it. The person who directed this documentary, his name is Morgan Neville. He directed such documentaries as 20 Feet from Stardom, which was basically about backup singers, everybody from Darlene Love to Sheryl Crow. He's done movies on Keith Richards, uh, Gore Vidal. Uh, he did the Mr. Rogers documentary and a bunch of other really iconic people. So really to me, there's almost nobody more qualified to make this documentary than Morgan Neville. Also, he didn't really know Bourdain personally. I think he had seen a couple episodes of the show, but he wasn't a friend. So he could be a little bit more objective. And really, when you give the project to somebody like that, it really becomes their creative sort of vision of how they want to present the narrative of, of what they see as the story of what they see 
as what the documentary is about. Why is this important for me to, to point out? Well, there's a couple of things with the documentary. Um, some of the people who did appear in it, there was some backlash where they kind of claimed after the fact that they didn't kind of authorize certain things or they didn't say it was okay to include this or, you know, it was the last time they were going to be talking about it. And I feel like sometimes when you touch upon a nerve that's that raw and something that hurts that deep, when you see that vision of how somebody interprets that, sometimes you, you have a tendency to push back and say, like, that's not what I meant. I don't have a problem with the way the documentary is presented. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Sort of the other controversy in it is there are some passages, and there are three, as far as my research shows, where Anthony Bourdain's voice was basically AI'd. They created his voice through computer programs uh, to kind of recite statements that he had written, but he had never recorded. And bear in mind, he recorded a lot of stuff. He wrote a multitude of books beyond Kitchen Confidential and Nasty Bits and Medium Raw and some of his fiction work as well. Um, but he also did audiobook versions of all of that. He also did voiceovers for No Reservations and Parts Unknown uh, in the layover. So there's a lot of recordings of his voice. So this, to me, isn't such a stretch that they took his words and then kind of used a computer program to replicate the sound of his voice. The major one that stands out in the documentary, which... I guess sort of the argument from a lot of people is that they didn't tell the audience, you know, that this was a simulation of his voice and not actually his voice. And the one that they admit to is that a very crucial part in the documentary where he had written in an email rather spontaneously to a friend of his, David Cho, uh, where he had just gotten divorced for the second time. He was obviously very lonely, and he wrote him an, uh, an email that said, you know, uh, you're a success now, I'm a success now, but my life is basically shit, you know, and asked David Cho, like, are you happy? Which, in hindsight, is clearly a cry for help. Now, when you watch the documentary, it starts with David Cho kind of reading the email that was written to him. And then it morphs into Bourdain's voice speaking the email. When you watch it without knowing that, you just kind of glaze over it and you never really think, hey, how did they get him recording a private email that he sent? Uh, now, after having watched it, you know, two or three times now, it makes sense of like, oh, yeah, there's no way that that was actually Anthony Bourdain's voice because there's no way he would have voiced over such a, a private email. Now, some of the backlashes, he may have hated that. He probably wouldn't have condoned it. Uh, other people saying that they didn't condone the director doing that. But one of the comments that I read that was really kind of brutally, brutally honest, and again, I've watched this three times now. They put it in perspective. The first time I cried for two hours. 
The second time I cried for about an hour and 45 minutes. And the third time I cried for about an hour and a half straight. It hits me every time and it hits me in different ways as I pick up subtle little details of things that are obvious signs of pain as you go through the movie. Um, and I don't really have a problem with the way it ends or the way his life ends. That was his choice. Uh, and when I get to the end of this, I'll kind of talk about how I understand that. Um, but the, the brutally honest comment that I read that I, I really kind of resonated me, with me was Anthony Bourdain killed himself. So in all reality, that negates his ability to have any say on what happens after that, you know? And, and so I get that. And again, this director was tasked with making a documentary about a beloved global icon. And he did so by scouring through. It's, it's fascinating to see like how many thousands of hours of videotape and, you know, audio recordings and writings that they were had to scour through to come down to two hours worth of content. To me, the director presented uh, an amazing portrayal uh, of somebody who, well, I'll, I'll save again what I think it's about till, till the very end. So I guess sort of the first point that I, I make is, is it a good documentary? I think it's an amazing documentary uh not only the bias of what a personal connection i have to it uh, the fact that bourdain is my absolute hero just i i think it's so well done that when i sat and watched it with my girlfriend who was never a big bourdain fan didn't know really a lot about him other than like he was this guy who had a show that traveled on cnn no concept of like this was a guy who started out cooking and you know earned his stripes in p-town this was a guy who was just a chef in new york who happened to write a book that happened to get picked up that happened to become huge and then one day he looked around and he wasn't working in the kitchen anymore he was a travel guy who got to live out his dreams and then somehow found himself a, a political icon as well, which coming from the restaurant business is a long, long way from our humble roots of sitting around in a kitchen or behind the bar, fantasizing about what we would do if we were president. And then one day waking up and realizing you're on CNN and people want to know what you would actually do if you were president. The thing is, is when you're in the kitchen, you fantasize about it but you know you're not actually qualified to do it. And then somebody thinks you're qualified to do it and they inflate you beyond what you believe in your own self. So from that perspective, for anybody who doesn't know a thing about Anthony Bourdain, this is a brilliant piece of work that is gonna make you wanna go out and watch Parts Unknown and No Reservations and Layover Cook's tour is still a little weird. I can't get through that because it's the beginning. Kind of like these first few episodes of Spirits Guide. They're just kind of weird and quirky and offbeat. Um, but let's get back to Spirits. Botanist Gin. What else do we know about it? It is 92 proof. Now, on the nose, I get so many flowers and herbs. I get citrus. 
you know, I get mint. I get big whiffs of sage and thyme. Hints of salinity. Mm. Now, mind you, I'm drinking gin straight. And I get it's not everybody's bag. But to me, the best way to know how it's going to fit in a cocktail is to kind of taste the ingredients on their own. This is, it's beautiful. It's elegant. It's got a nice sort of rich, almost oily mouthfeel. And I think that has to do with the still that it's made on, the way that it's made. It's a weird kind of quirky variation of a pot still that they found in an old distillery that wasn't being used and nobody knew what to do with it and they're now using it to make the base spirit for gin uh the base spirit of this by the way is a grain neutral spirit this is fantastic and if you're wondering what cocktail it's going to be perfect in a negroni it's got the right amount of alcohol the right amount of herbaceousness. So if you're using a great uh, vermouth, like an Antica formula or a Punta Mas, um, I would almost go something a little bit more bitter than even Campari, like a Carpano bitter is perfect. So botanist, Carpano, Antica formula, a perfect Negroni. Three-tiered rating system. Is it good? This is absolutely beautiful. Is it worth the money? Yeah, it's right around that $40 point. Uh, does the bottle start a conversation? This is a great, great bottle, by the way. Clear glass, round, short neck. The label is very simple. Uh, it's just probably about an inch wide across the top of the bottle. It has the number 22 on it for the number of botanicals that are in there. Says where it's from. If you're a gin drinker, or if you've got somebody who's a gin drinker coming over to your house and they've never had this before and they see this, this should start a conversation without a doubt. God, I say without a doubt a lot. Uh, you guys probably get annoying with that. I feel like I say without a doubt and super a lot. All right, so that's botanist gin. I'm going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to come back, talk a little bit more about Roadrunner, and get on to the next gin. All right, so we're back. Uh, moving on. Gin, Roadrunner, Anthony Bourdain documentary. Moving on in the, the documentary, but spiritually, we're moving on to another gin, another gin that I have a pretty strong personal connection with, and this is from Copper in Kings. This is called The History of Lovers, and it's a gin distilled with uh, roses, hibiscus, strawberries, and honey. It's bottled at 90 proof. Now, my connection to this is I've been there. Copper and Kings is probably one of the most undervalued, underrated distilleries that there is out there right now in America. 
they're doing brandy in the heart of bourbon country. It's right in the Butchertown section of Louisville. So their barrels, a lot of them are used bourbon barrels. And by the way, if you haven't explored American brandy, it's it's just it's an untapped resource for great drinking. Uh, in these sort of COVID crazy times when so many bourbons aren't available on the shelf, brandies are a great substitution at a fraction of the cost. The Copper and King's American Brandy, which is 92 proof and under 35 bucks, is going to drink better and stronger uh, than a lot of the bourbons uh, that you're looking at. Now, that's what they specialize in is brandy and alambic gooseneck stills. I've been in the room where they actually make it. Uh, I get to actually pour some pear brandy straight off the barrel into a bottle for myself. I actually still have a little bit of that left. It's absolutely freaking amazing. I've been in the aging room where they age their spirits, uh, much like Blackened does with their whiskey. Uh, Copper and Kings plays music in the aging area to try to create vibrations uh, for the barrels that everything is resting in. And yeah, Brandy is their first love, but they also make incredible Destillers, uh, which are kind of like cordials, but they're too high a proof and they don't have any sugar added to them. They make an amazing absinthe that's just out of this world. And they make a whole bunch of fantastic gins. Now, here's what I can tell you about Copper and Kings, A History of Lovers Gin. It's bottled at 90 proof, which is right where you want your gin to be. Uh, it's an apple wine base where traditionally most of your gins are grain neutral spirit based. This is an apple wine distillate base. Now, it's flavored with... Uh, rose hips, rose water, orange, tangerine, lime and grapefruit, jasmine, lavender, coriander, pink peppercorns, and then obviously strawberry, hibiscus, and honey, like I mentioned. I believe these are all, uh, actually, I'm not sure if they're macerated or, or vapor. Uh, card ahead. Natural color. So it's got a slightly pinkish hue. And on the nose, this doesn't smell like any gin you've ever had. And while it's got strawberry and hibiscus and it's apple wine and it's base and it's got all these flavors, it still smells like a gin. But you're getting so many great floral notes. Uh, you're getting that citrus Maybe not so much the lime. Maybe the lime kind of balances out that orange and the tangerine. But definitely like the jasmine, the lavender, rose water. Just this is one of those spirits that is just fantastic to smell over and over and over again. Like I always say, proof is in the palate. I mean, that is, it's everything. It's just, it's beautiful. It's, 
if there was a gin for Valentine's Day, that would be it. It tastes like roses. It has that, the peppercorn that to me sometimes has like, like a, ja a black jelly bean kind of thing going on there. Uh, but then all that beautiful citrus fruit, uh, floral roses, that is just everything. Now, if there was one cocktail I had to pair that with, definitely a Clover Club uh, with that raspberry syrup. But, I mean, I would use this in a fun play on a bee's knees. Again, if you want to have gin and tonics, this is a killer one for that. Under 40 bucks on the shelf, so very, very affordable, very, very approachable. Uh, Three-tiered rating system, is it good? Hell yeah. It's Copper and Kings. There isn't anything bad that comes out of Copper and Kings. And I will put my name, my money where my mouth is, my reputation, my integrity on that. That anything you purchase that has the Copper and Kings name on it is of the highest quality and it is absolutely fantastic. So is it good? Yes. Is it worth the money? Hands down, it is worth the money. And to be perfectly honest, I went there. Tried the brandy. I tried the uh, the absinthe, some of the destillers. I didn't try the gin when I was there. And then my great friend, the BSO, my little brother, had actually called me up one day and said, hey, at the store, can you get one of the Copper and King's gins in for me? I got it in. I had to try it. Um, this one is fantastic. Their American dry gin is fantastic. They have a couple other types of gins. Which is a great exploration because I'm going to taste four gins on this podcast and they couldn't be four more totally different spirits. And there you have Copper and Kings who makes probably four or five different gins themselves and they couldn't be four or five more different spirits. So again, this is what I wanted to show with this is that Gin is not what we think it is. It's not just pine trees. You know, it's not just Tanqueray. And it's not a knock against Tanqueray, but it's what a lot of us were raised on. And we think that they all taste that super piney uh, flavor and aroma. That is just not the case. We think we know Anthony Bourdain is a travel show host. That's just not the case. There are so many layers and complexities. And I feel like different faces and different variations of who he was, uh, which is why he's not only interesting to me, but something that I truly, truly connect to. So back to the Roadrunner documentary and, and kind of the question I, I put to myself was, what did I like about this documentary? And I like the fact that it shows that, yes, he started out as a chef, but he was a very complex, deep human being who you know, enjoyed getting out of the kitchen and going on these incredible adventures where he could live his dreams. He could live out the sort of movie fantasies that he had. He could live out sort of the stories of the books that he had read. He could go places that he only dreamed about. But it also showed that he was a father. It also showed that he struggled between being this person that he had built himself into being and how that was sometimes 
you know, at a conflict with being a father or a husband. I It showed that he was human. You know, we never get to see this on No Reservations or, you know, The Layover or Parts Unknown because he always looked like he was enjoying the exploration. We never really get to see that behind that he was struggling to be, you know, a family person as well as an icon. He was struggling to be normal, which for so many of us, you know, we don't even know what that is, let alone how to achieve what we perceive to be normal. So it's nice for somebody like me who struggles constantly to feel normal. And then when people say like, what is normal? And you, you don't really have an answer for that. Um, and you, you kind of live out your dream of, of being a big shot. And you guys out there listening, make me feel like I'm a big shot sometimes. And I, I love it. And I, I truly appreciate it. And you guys are all amazing to me. And yet there are days where I just kind of want to sit home and I don't want to be the, the whiskey guy. You know, I just want to sit home and, and watch TV and, and be sort of ignorantly bliss and not saying that I'm ever going to be on the scale of an Anthony Bourdain, but I kind of get that, that dichotomy between the two things that you're, you know, that sometimes the thing you love is also the thing that's killing you. And so it's just sort of nice. Um, and, and I really do like about this documentary of like, it makes people who are a little off center, people from my business, which is the restaurant business. And no matter what it is that I do here on the podcast, um, the, the delusions of grandeur that, you know, there's going to be thousands of people listening to this in my brain. I'm always just going to be a bartender. And to see somebody who really viewed themselves as like he got to do all this cool stuff. But in his mind, he was only just ever really a chef who kind of get to live out his fantasy. There, there's something comforting in knowing that the thoughts you have that make you think you're crazy sometimes, other people have an experience. And so there's a nice kind of connection to that, uh, for me at least, that I get to kind of watch that and go like, I get that. I understand that. Um, so that was it was something that I liked a lot. Um, the only thing I didn't really like in watching the documentary for like the third time, I, you start to pick up on things, uh, especially if you're aware of mental health issues uh, from the time he started making the show and in certain things that what made him great were also sort of the illnesses that he had, the mental health illnesses and the addiction issues made him great at what he did. For me, I, I don't know that they ever explored and I, I kind of would be interested in where did it all stem from? And maybe that's just a personal curiosity because sometimes it's a, a, a thing that I struggle with of, you know, self-destructive behavior or addiction issues or depression yeah, uh, I'm just kind of putting it all out there, you know, the the catharsis of this, that sometimes I deal with that. And 
It's also one of the things that I really want to create in this podcast is that if there are those of you out there who are going like, yeah, I feel kind of messed up, but I feel kind of alone. It's important to me that people out there who deal with the darkness, the depression, uh, you know, we're in the spirits world. And sometimes you go through these sort of benders and binges where you question, like, do I have control over this or does it have control over me? Uh, but for a lot of people out there, I know you, you feel alone. I know there have been times that I feel alone. And I find that by talking about it and, and talking with other people and when you find out, when you, you bring up like, yeah, you know, sometimes I feel this way and the person you talk to goes like, yeah, no, I get it. I feel that way too. Uh, there's a comfort on both sides of that to know like you're not alone. Uh, so one of the things I kind of want to do with this podcast and not to get depressing or dark, but to let people know like if you're out there and you're feeling for lack of a better word, if you're feeling fucked up in any sort of way, like one, know that you're not alone. And two, know that if you shoot me an email, if you message me through Instagram or through Facebook, I'm going to get back to you because I know what it's like. And it's just sometimes good to have people out there that you can connect with who understand what you're going through. Um, that being said, what I, I kind of felt was lacking from the documentary was there, there doesn't seem to be any sort of explanation as to why he felt the way he did or he was the way he was. Um, by all accounts, his childhood was fairly normal. It, you know, he loved his parents. He loved his brother. Uh, his parents weren't cruel to him. They didn't beat him. You know, there's no signs that he was molested as a child or anything like that. By all accounts, if you read in Kitchen Confidential, his childhood wasn't that bad. Uh, there's a comment that he makes, and I think they put it in the documentary of, you know, my parents made the mistake of loving me. So there doesn't seem to be any sort of childhood trauma. Uh, so I don't know if there was any. Maybe there wasn't, and it's just sort of a genetic thing. But I feel like, and not to to kind of capsulize the the documentary too much of what it was about, but obviously the kind of overwhelming theme of it is, you know, mental health issues, depression, you know, uh, addiction issues, which ultimately, you know, kind of led to his, you know, unfortunate suicide, but there doesn't seem to be any exploration into where all that pain really stemmed from. And I guess just from a personal point of view, I would have liked to have known, you know, sometimes you you see documentaries like this and there's always like, a, well, this happened in childhood or, you know, Johnny Cash had a younger brother who was killed when he was younger. And so there's there's usually some sort of event and that really wasn't explored. And maybe that wasn't really the the director's sort of vision or thought process. But I feel like it was kind of all laid on the table that, yeah, there's some issues here, but we didn't really explore why or where they come from. <sighs> that being said, I've got a little bit of this gin left in the glass. And I'm going to tell you, uh, 
I get maybe gin is not for everybody. Um, but if you're going to drink this Copper and Kings with tonic water, uh, don't go with just the basic tonic water. Maybe the Mediterranean, uh, maybe one of the flavors of tonic water. Yeah, but this is fantastic. I This would make a killer martini, quite honestly. All right, so we're halfway through this Anthony Bourdain Roadrunner documentary episode. I'm going to take another quick break, and then when we come back, I'm going to get into a gin that was made at a place that I've actually been to twice um, that I, I just absolutely love, and it's a style of gin that I love. And then I'm going to get a little deeper into the Roadrunner documentary. So take a quick break. I'll be right back. All right, and we're back. And spiritually speaking, we have moved on to the next gin. And what we're tasting now, I say we, it's just me. Uh, what I am tasting now and I'm sharing with you guys now is Aviation Old Tom Gin. Now, I have a very deep connection with this gin uh, on a couple of different levels. One, I've been to where they make this twice. Uh, other than Kentucky, uh, Portland is the only other place that I've been where there's, you know, distilleries to go visit. Uh, I've been to Portland twice. Other than Louisville, actually, no, I would say Portland, Oregon, is probably my favorite place, and then Louisville would be my second. Uh, yeah, this was the first real major place I visited when I was out in Portland, and then a couple of years later, I actually brought my daughter back out there for her 21st birthday. Uh, so there's a sort of a deep personal connection there. Also on the kind of the gin connection at the store where I work, I do these sort of challenges during COVID when we couldn't do tastings. So we were doing all these virtual tastings and video tastings. And we actually did a gin tournament where we set it up like a March Madness bracket. We took 16 gins and we, you know, I kind of seeded them by price point and we would blind taste gins against each other. And then sort of the tiebreaker for that particular matchup would be a, a cocktail. So in one round, we did Negronis for everything. Uh, in one round, we did, uh, I forget, we did Bees Knees, we did Aviation. And then in the final, we actually did Clover Clubs. And the gin that actually won the best gin in my store was the Aviation Old Tom Gin. Now, I'm a sucker for Old Tom gins, especially Old Tom gins that are made really, really well. Uh, old Tom is a style that goes way, way back, you know, hundreds of years. That was usually for inferior gins where they might add some sort of sweetener to it and then Barrel age it is a way to kind of cover up the fact that it wasn't a really well-made gin. But there's a bunch of gin producers now that are intentionally making old Tom style gins 
They're absolutely fantastic. They're great for cocktails. Just because of that barrel age, it adds a layer of spice to it and, and an extra layer of body. And for whatever reason, I always tend to get a lot of ginger as a flavor profile for old Tom gins. So here's what I can tell you about aviation. It's made by what was then known as House Spirits, uh, started by the Krogstad family. Any of you guys who are movie buffs, Ryan Reynolds actually bought the brand a few years ago. Yes, Deadpool owns Aviation Gin. This particular uh, gin is made with cardamom, coriander, lavender, anise, sarsaparilla, juniper, of course, and two types of oranges. And the way they make their gin is they put all the botanicals and basically a giant cheesecloth. And then they let it macerate in the neutral spirit. And then they distill that spirit and you get the vapor off. And that's how you get the flavor. Now, at House Spirits, that's also where they make Westward Single Malt. So the barrels that they're using to age aviation gin in are Westwood whiskey barrels. Um, so you're, you're getting legit whiskey barrels, but not bourbon barrels, which is kind of an, an interesting thing because you're not getting, you're getting a, a whiskey that's made with hundred percent malted barley as opposed to, you know, corn and barley and rye. So you're not getting some of those big vanilla notes and some of the more sweeter notes. You're getting a little bit more cereal notes on it. Also aviation as a, the gin itself was created by a couple of bartenders who were going through Prohibition era cocktail books and they came across a recipe for a cocktail called the Aviation, uh, which is a drink that has gin, uh, cherry liqueur, lemon juice, and then a little bit of creme de violet. And the cocktail basically vanished off the American landscape for years because there was no producers that were making creme de violet that was available in America. So for years, it was just sort of forgotten. And, you know, around the time when I was bartending, when I first started bartending, at least, it was all the sugar bomb cocktails. And we really weren't doing a lot of craft cocktails. You know, we were doing a lot of your grape crushes and Pearl Harbors and white Russians and, and things like that. What we call the sugar bomb cocktails. <sighs> this gin is so good for cocktails. I can't, yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, that, one of the things I really like about aviation is it's what we kind of refer to as a new craft style or new American craft style gin, where so many people were kind of raised on gin being Tanqueray or beef eater, which was basically piney or more piney. This doesn't have any of that sort of piney character. You're getting a lot of, like I said, a lot of ginger, a lot of peppercorn, um, and that, that kind of burnt orange. Yeah, this is, is killer. 84 proof right where you want it to be. It's actually a little bit lower again than, than your Tanquerays, which can be up in the 90s. I like this, quite honestly. I'm loving just sipping this straight up room temperature out of the glass. 
because it has just so, so much flavor. Oh, man. All right, this one's way too easy for me to drink, and I, I don't want to get too sidetracked because I want to get back to Roadrunner and kind of talk about some of the things about this documentary that really stood out to me. And again, part of the reason I was on the fence about whether or not I wanted to even do this episode is if you look at it through one lens, it can get really dark. Um, it's really, really heavy. And I remember the, the first time I watched it just almost being drained by the end of it. And again, watching it a couple of different times, you get to see it through different lenses. And some of the things that really stand out are, you know, for some people, Anthony Bourdain was the no reservations, parts unknown guy. He was this travel show guy. And for people like me who had read Kitchen Confidential prior to that, he was a restaurant god. Uh, and, and But I saw sort of the transition of, one, that he loved running a pirate crew in the restaurant. And when you watch this documentary, you kind of get the sense of, even though he had producers and directors and all these people that were running his show, in reality, he was running them. Uh, there's a, a spot in the documentary where, you know, they talk about the first show he did, which was Cook's Tour, and how quirky and weird and awkward it was because they didn't know what they were doing, and he didn't know what they were doing. And then it pretty much just hit a point where he looked at them and said, you know what, uh, I'm just going to go, and you're going to follow, and we'll deal with it later. Uh, we can't script this stuff. The whole point was for him to go out and discover. And what my takeaway from that was, he was still running a pirate crew in this sort of passive aggressive people. But if you read Kitchen Confidential, he always talks about like the people who owned the restaurants that he worked for. He always referred to them as his masters. So I think he knew that the television people were his masters, but he was running them the whole time. The other big thing that I, I really took away from this is connections. You know, it, it's, it's dark and, and you, you get to see a lot of these people who are just totally torn up at the end, you know, when he, you know, sadly killed himself. But looking at it from the positive side of like, he was able to connect with, you know, musicians, Josh Holm from Queens of the Stone Age, Iggy Pop, um, Allison Mosshart from you know, work, who worked with Jack White and was in a band called The Kills. Uh, he had all these friendships with, you know, these punk musicians and these hard rock musicians. And he also had friendships with people like Eric Repair and some of these five-star chefs. And then he had, you know, friendships with David Cho, who, you know, other artists and creative people. So it wasn't just one type of person. He was able to connect with all of these different people. And you saw it on the show, and that was kind of his appeal, where you'd see him go into a place like the Congo, or a place like Taiwan, or Myanmar, or, you know, Italy. And it's funny, Parts Unknown is available in podcast form. So after you're done listening to this, uh, go check it out. Uh, look up Parts Unknown. And there's a great episode in maybe the first 
10 episodes that he goes to Italy and he talks about how it was so fake. They were on a fishing trip and they were throwing like frozen fish in the water. So it would look on camera like they were harvesting fish. And he was completely just open and honest about it. And then he talks about how he just drank a whole bunch. And as the episode goes on and he's doing the narration and the overdub, talking about how he doesn't remember any of this happening. Uh, it's a great, great thing. But it's so honest and real that, you know, myself and so many millions of other people who watch the show connected with him on those levels. What I took away from it was not only did he actually connect with people in real life on the TV show, but all his friendships were so intense in, you know, the people who got him really got him. And when he passed, these people were devastated, you know, as you should be when somebody important in your world, you know, is no longer here. But to watch and see the the level of devastation that some of these people felt by his passing is, you know, you can look at it and it's a really sad thing and you cry watching because you feel that pain. But you also have to look at it in a positive way of it takes a certain kind of person who can make those kind of connections with that many people of that many different varying backgrounds and in the way they, you know, of who they were, whether it was restaurant people that, you know, this whole journey for him started out by criticizing restaurant people. And yet so many restaurant people revered him. You know, he was a punk rock fan. So it's no surprise that, you know, he latched onto those people. But those people latched on to him. And, you know, when you watch the parts about, you know, Josh Holm from Queens of the Stone Age or, or Allison Mosshart, they didn't attach to him because he was this travel show host. And they didn't attach to him because he used to be this great chef. They connected with him because of the kind of human being that he was, you know, whether they connected about you know, Josh Holm and, and Bourdain talking about like their kids and how, you know, they wanted to take them on tour or take them around the world to show them what they really did or, you know, connecting with other people on how do you deal with being a celebrity or being a star. And it had nothing to do with the fact that he was a star. It had more to do with the concept of stardom and how they, they connected and just the way he was such a, a giving person. And so, you know, I try to draw the positives out of it because again, if you watch this, it can be really deep and dark and heavy, but I really think in the loop around, like, is it a good documentary? It really does show like this just incredibly layered, textured, nuanced human being who was, while he was in pain and that's, that's clear and obvious through so much of it, he also loved life and he loved living life and he loved the adventure. It, it's just such a, a, a fascinating thing. Kind of the other thing that I, I took away and about a piece that I wrote that I'll kind of save till the very end after I wrap everything up. But there's a, a spot and there's, there's a couple of really 
nuanced scenes in this documentary. Uh, there's one, and you can tell by how young he looks, that it's probably during the book tour for Kitchen Confidential. It's before things really started to get crazy and the machine started going. But there's a, a scene of him saying, like, you know, this will be over soon. I can't wait for it to be over. Uh, I'll be happy when this is over. And he's kind of referencing like going on Oprah and going on Letterman and doing all these talk shows that were starting to take over his life. And this is in the very beginning that he was expecting it to be over soon. The, the perspective I get of this is like as restaurant people, like we love the whole process of getting into it. You prep, you have a dream of how the shift is going to go. The shift gets super crazy and it feels like it's going to last forever. And the comfort you take is like, this is going to be over soon. You know, like these people can't just keep coming into the bar and they can't keep coming in the restaurant forever. Like we close at a certain point and that point is coming soon. And so for, you know, restaurant people, there was a beginning, a middle and an end to every day of our lives. And it was almost like when the whole thing started to really take off for him, you could almost see it in that that short little clip of, all right, so I had this dream. It's starting to get crazy. It's not going to last forever. It's going to end. But then 15 years later, the thing was still going. And you can see, especially if you've ever worked in a restaurant, you've got to have an understanding of how exhausting that had to be to just keep up that pace for that long and to want to quit, but to know like uh, – you're too far into it now. Like you don't walk out in the middle of a shift. And so I, that was one of the scenes that really, really stood out to me. Uh, there's a scene with him and Josh Holm uh, sitting in a bar and they're talking about, you know, how much you love to come home after being away. And then after you're home for a little while, how you can't wait to leave and go be out there again. And again, I think that's a, a restaurant person in the, the craziness of who we are of, you know, we can't wait to get into work. We get in the middle of work. God, we can't wait for it to be over. And then when it's over and that adrenaline is still flowing with you, you don't really know what to do with it. And that's how most of us would end up staying up all night because you're still jacked up on adrenaline. You're happy it's over, but you still have all this energy. And if you see that scene, if you haven't seen this documentary, and I'll say it a million times, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, but in that scene where they're sitting in the bar, you know, at the very end of it, they kind of allude to almost feeling guilty that you can't wait to get back on the road. And, you know, there's a lot of talk throughout the documentary of like just wanting to be normal and then the follow up of what is normal. But pay close attention to his eyes at the end of that sort of sequence where him and Josh are in the bar because there's almost a, a look of like, oh, shit, on his face of like, this is who I am, but I, I'm not really happy with who I am, but I'm, you know, it's what I'm going to do. It, it's just a, it's a very interesting thing if you watch his eyes at the beginning of the, uh, at the end of that scene. Uh, just as a reminder, this aviation old Tom Jim is just so killer. Um, yeah, I mean, some of the other things that stand out, again, you, getting to live your adventure, uh, you know, one of the questions I, you know, 
doing the research and listening to other podcasts and interviews of people talking about it. This is somebody who dreamed the craziest dream and got to live it out. You know, like most of us will never get to do that. A lot of us dream big and, you know, we go through our mundane everyday lives and dream of traveling the world or, you know, we dream of being a rock star or being a movie star or, you know, having big dreams sometimes is what helps you get out of bed and get through the day. Cause without hopes and dreams, you know, sometimes it's hard to go on. So for, you know, it's, it's amazing to see somebody who was so humble, who had a big dream, but never, you know, you never believe it's going to come true. And I, I take so much of that away from this of like, this was somebody who, dreamt big like so many of us do and yeah you dare to dream and then somebody just dumps it in your lap and goes like here you go let's do this and you're off and running like you know when people go like how is this guy your hero you know he killed himself and that's a sort of a separate assessment for maybe at the end but this is somebody who not much different in age than where I am now who had big dreams and then somebody just kind of came up to him and said your dreams are going to come true let's go do this and he got a chance to live out everything he ever wanted to do you know unfortunately there's always something to balance it you know and you know, when I, when I kind of do the assessment of what I think the documentary is really really about we'll kind of talk about that like but, you know, he always wanted to be a good dad, but he knew he couldn't be a good dad, but he wanted to, you know, yeah, I want to stay away from kind of the negativity parts of that. The, the Really, the positive is like this was a person who dared to dream and got a chance to live their dream. And for me, that that holds out hope every day that, hey, maybe somebody hears this podcast and goes, you know what? You got talent. How about we we go do something? Um, so those are some of the things that stand out, you know, it's, was a life lived to the fullest, uh, until he couldn't anymore. Uh, it was a life full of making human connections. It was a life of being open to every experience you could possibly have, you know, and, and sometimes that's a dangerous thing, obviously. Um, but man, I, I just watched, you know, that documentary and I'm like, and there's my hero who got to do so many of the things that so many of us will never get to do on that level. Um, and the other thing, you know, that kind of stands out, you know, when he asks Iggy pop in the, the documentary, you know, what, you know, still turns you on and, how they talked about like loving to be loved in loving to love and, and how important that was uh, to both of them, you know, that, that sort of search for love. And I guess the other thing that stands out is it becomes a cautionary tale of, you know, it, it, it seems so strange to say like, you know, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it because you, you wish for it. Something, you know, you don't think you're going to get, but even if you get them, 
I don't think anybody ever has the wish in the dream that he had and then not only got to live it, but live it to the extent in the extreme that he got to live it. Um, you know, for so many of us, he was that that voice, uh, but he was my travel guide through France. I may never get to France, but I feel like there are parts of it I've been to through living it through those experiences because he wanted to live it, but then he wanted to share it with everybody else, you know, and that's part of what made him such a great chef and a cook is, you know, you make food, but the whole point of making great food is to feed other people, to, to share and to kind of bring people together. So those are a lot of the things that I took away, you know, those sort of life lessons of, of you know, make sure people know that you love them when you love them and, and say it before you don't have a chance, you know, food and spirits and everything that I want to do with this podcast. There are little scenes in that documentary where, you know, he's at home on the grill and he takes such pleasure in cooking for family or for friends and bringing them all together. Um, when he would go to other countries, it's always a thing where he would, you know, find whoever was hosting him and taking him around and they would bring him back to like their grandmother's house and they would all sit around the dinner table. There are so many instances of that where food or he'd be out late at night in, you know, Hong Kong or Taiwan eating street food, drinking, as we like to say, shitty continental lagers and whatever sort of local spirit there was hanging out with local musicians or local cooks or, you know, local cultural figures. But it was always over spirits and food and conversation. So, you know, those are the things that I take away because you get to see that the person who was on screen that we all attached to was actually the person off screen. And so it wasn't really an act. That's just who he was. And again, that's sort of the inspiration for what I want to do here. You know, in, in the future, you know, you guys are going to hear episodes uh, where I invite people here and I feed them and we have dinner together and we talk and then we come record. So, you know, we're connecting over food. We're connecting over spirits and we're using these spirits to connect with all of you guys and just sort of build a community and a family. Um, yeah, those are my big takeaways from it. I'm going to take one more break and then come back wrap it up because i really want to talk about what i feel like this documentary was all about to me all right be right back all right here we are it's hard to believe we're about to get through this this episode this has not been easy and again i've recorded this a couple of times but i I feel like we, we've managed to get through on the positive side of this one. Spiritually, we have moved on to one final gin in this tasting. This is a very, very special one. It's one that most of you out there listening probably haven't seen or heard of yet. You might not even know it's out in the marketplace. And even though it is out in the marketplace, it's in such limited 
quantities in such a limited space. In fact, as far as I know, it's only available in one space. I am talking about Kersey's New England Dry Gin. Now, this is the gin that is made at Treehouse, uh, which is one of the most important breweries in the world at this point, which is amazing. Um, you know, a while back, they started a distilling program. My little brother, uh, the BSO, who you guys have heard uh, on some Monday night sample size episodes, and you are going to hear on a very fun episode that we recorded uh, that's coming out in a couple weeks. He is the assistant master distiller at Treehouse. Uh, I was trying to get him on for this. We just couldn't connect. And in the future, we'll talk about this a little bit more in depth. So I can't really tell you a lot about the botanicals or how it's made. And being that it's, you know, Treehouse and trade secrets and they're very young, I'm sure he probably couldn't give me a lot of information. As it is, I do remember him mentioning that there were some apples involved in there somewhere, hence the New England part of it. This gin on the nose is like, well, like every other gin that we talk about, they're like no other gin. There's almost like a, like a marzipan kind of nose to this, like an almond marzipan. And the next time I, I have him on, I'll, I'll see if these are spot on sort of notes, but yeah, I mean, my nose is right in the glass. I'm not getting ethanol burn, which is amazing because I'm looking at the bottle and we're talking about 94 proof. So it's up there. This is 10 proof points higher than the aviation. And yet there is no ethanol burn coming up through the nose on this one. Yeah, kudos to my little brother on this and in the team that he is part of there. Uh, I've got to taste the rum from them as well. And from what I've tasted so far, these guys are just killing it uh, spirits-wise. Going for a little taste. Oh, I get a little bit of citrus there. Yeah, that sort of marzipan marshmallow almond thing. All right. It's got a nice texture. And when I was talking to BSO uh, before and I'm talking about the, the master distiller there in how he was such an eau de vie nut. And I don't know if I can say where he worked before that, um, but it makes sense uh, knowing my familiarity with that brand. Uh, but he's an eau de vie nut and this drinks like an eau de vie. Like, you know, it's, it's oily, it's viscous. You know, it still has some nice juniper character in there. But all that sort of marzipan and almond and then big citrus notes. This is, out of the four, maybe the most dangerous gin I've tasted in that. Like, I can just pour this in a glass at 94 proof and I'm just crushing this back. 
By the way, anybody out there who's, you know, drinking vodka, and I'm not Fred Minnick, I'm not going to go out and tell you that vodka sucks. Drink what you like to drink, whatever. Um, but if you want something with a little bit more body, something with a little bit more flavor, because vodka, by definition, is not even supposed to have flavor, and a little bit more punch, this is where you should be leaning. Lean towards gins. Instead of vodka soda, drink gin and soda. At least it's got some flavor. And this, this would make an amazing highball. I would drink this with soda water, well, until I fell down. So, you know, all day as long as, you know, my body would allow. But this would make, you know, great cocktails as well. Uh, I think it would work really well, actually, in a bee's knees. I think it would take to citrus and honey really, really well. I'm not sure about Negronis because the, I feel like the flavors are very delicate. That I think maybe the Campari and Vermouth might overtake it. But I also could see this in an aviation really, really easily. I'm going to pour a little bit of this. Because, you know, we're coming down the home stretch. We're wrapping up here. So, I guess I can turn on the jets. We're not hitting the brakes. We're going full steam through the finish of this. So, back to the Roadrunner documentary. I guess the big question that I wanted to ask myself and sort of ask anybody else out there who's watching it, because I feel like, and again, we talked about gin. And when you ask people like, what is gin all about? Most of them will go like pine trees. It's too strong. And what we've shown is it's not about, you know, as much as gin has to retain juniper character, gins aren't about the juniper. Gin is about, the music that happens in between the notes. Yes, all gins have juniper and they have some of that piney kind of peppercorn flavor. But when you have gins that are using apples or sage or, you know, the botanist with all these different flowers and botanicals, I, you know, I've tasted gins that are, you know, the Karun gin that has a lot of red apples in it. Or gins from Japan that have like Sancho peppers and yuzu fruit. Gins are all about the other stuff. Not the one thing everybody perceives it as. They're about the other nuances. So while yes, on the surface, this is a documentary about mental illness, about addiction issues, and ultimately about suicide. It's about so much more than that. It's about humanity. It's about people who are flawed like we all are. And I, I think that's why so many of us attach, you know, like we all feel like, oh, you know, he's speaking to me like that represents who I am. I think it just does because there's an openness and there's an honesty there. And to me, it's a documentary about being honest, being open to every experience, being open to connect with all kinds of people, especially in an age, and I I, I almost cringe when I, I think of what he would be thinking of the current state of our world right now, the further into social media we get 
and you know the further into this sort of cyber world where everybody lives behind a computer screen you know and everybody's a tough guy on twitter and facebook and in instagram and in all these other social media platforms everybody can talk shit but you you can't even get out there to get punched in the mouth and the bso and i have always talked about i don't trust a human being who's never been punched in the mouth it's easy to talk shit um but it's different when you can get humbled and that's unfortunately what social media prevents from happening is you can get on your twitter account and you can go after a celebrity or you can troll somebody else or you can cyber bully them without ever having to be in the same room with them and they can never punch you back in the mouth one of the things that always kept me and i'm sure so many of you out there is that first time when you're a kid and you talk shit and you get yourself in a fight and somebody else whoops your ass you learn humility you know for a lot of us growing up as kids sometimes that person who whooped your ass was your own dad and you learn to fear and respect things and so much of that is gone in our culture um and uh, i'm not here to politicize or say whether that's right or wrong the point i'm trying to make is instead of hiding behind all this technology this is a movie about going out into the world and not reading about it not watching you know a film about it it's about going to a far off place like the congo like you know peru or myanmar or even going to detroit or louisville or vancouver or quebec and actually meeting real human beings actually interacting with real human beings you know shaking their hand giving them a hug I, and i don't care about covid you know like there's there's no amount of technology as much as everybody wants to believe that you know facebook and twitter and instagram like as much as people want to believe that it makes the world smaller it actually makes it more distant in a lot of ways and no amount of technology in the world will ever replace the power of a human touch there is no way that texting somebody you love them is ever going to become more powerful than hugging them and i get so much of that so to me this documentary really is about humanity it's about connecting it's about not telling your story but listening to other people's stories and letting that enrich you really when you watch it you know we're watching it to hear the story of anthony bourdain but while you're watching it what you realize is he's out there soliciting the stories of humans who didn't really have a voice for the masses that you know we didn't know we needed to hear these stories uh but it turns out we did and he brought those to us by being selfless by not so many times in conversation the only time people aren't speaking is when they're waiting to speak and they're not actually listening so so much of this documentary to me is about listening it's about being interactive it's about the human experience and yeah the way it ends is tragic but you know what that's human 
some of us are flawed. Some of us are broken. And not all of us are going to go out in the way that stereotypically the world wants you to go out. I'm not here to say that what he did was right or wrong. You know, I can say I get it. I understand. I, I know what it's like to kind of live in that darkness at times. But it, it's about humanity. You know, listening to music, reading books, watching movies, and ultimately connecting with other people. And in the end of the documentary, you really see that of, you know, we've all lost people in our lives. And, you know, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes you just go, oh, you know, that's really terrible and you feel really bad. And, you know, you go to the calling hours and you hug the family. When you watch this documentary and you get sort of to the end, and again, it, it you know, it, it's very Bourdainish in, in that, you know, in the opening of the movie, in his own voice, you know, he says, you know, the story doesn't end well. And anybody who knows who he is knows how the story kind of ends. But when somebody passes in your life, I've had, you know, great friends in the past couple of years pass away, COVID, cancer, other causes, and it hurts and I miss them all the time. Um, my God, Sambuca Rich, if you're out there somehow and you can figure out technology to listen to this from wherever you are, uh, Betty, uh, love you to death. I miss you every day. You know, in those people, it, it hurt for me to lose. When you get to the end of the documentary and you see all of these people, they're not hurt that he's gone. And this was filmed years after he passed. You know, and for a lot of us, when somebody passes immediately after, yeah, you're really screwed up. And over time, it gets a little easier. You never really get over it. When you watch the end of this documentary, and I, I think this is the ultimate in humanity, in, in human connection, is the people that they're interviewing for this, they're not just hurt or sad that he was gone. They are absolutely, positively fucking devastated. It, it was hard to watch for me in that, yeah, I was sad watching it because I knew the way it was going to end and it, it made you cry, like, you know, to know what happened. But to watch the people who were actually close to him just break down and they're devastated and, you know, they're crying their eyes out years later. You can look at that as being like, that's really dark and that's really sad. I look at that in a really positive way of like, what kind of human being does it take to make a connection that runs that deep with that many other human beings where you can just devastate a landscape by not being here anymore. And I don't think any of those people in the end are even sort of surprised, you know, as they look back and kind of recall some of the little things and emails he sent and things that he said and, and things that they picked up on video. You know, when you look back at it and you go like, oh, yeah, I should have seen that coming. I think they've all had that time to recollect and go like, yeah, I should have seen that coming. So it's not so shocking that it happened. It's the loss of that energy and that soul. Um, 
in that I I take a positive that there are still souls like that that exist beyond. I'm not saying he didn't use technology, but they exist beyond the technology. They exist in that hand to hand, give you a hug, tell you I love you, bust your chops, be honest and real with you, but in a face to face human manner. So ultimately, I think this is a documentary about humanity um, and how sometimes it is flawed and not every story has a happy ending. And that's kind of life, you know. Um, it doesn't make it any less sad, but it, it does make it all that more real. Man, this treehouse gin is, is absolutely fantastic. So to kind of recap as we wrap up here, um, all of these bottles were fantastic. Um they're all great. They're all worth the money that I paid for them. Um, especially the treehouse one, because that was a gift from my little brother. Um, so it didn't cost me anything. It's worth more than that. And do all of these bottles start a conversation on your bar? Absolutely. They're all cool, quirky bottles. Every single one of them. I've talked about it all along. Three-tiered rating system on this documentary. Is it good? It's so good. It's good if you're a Bourdain fan and you know the story. It's good if you only read Confidential and you didn't know he became a travel host. And I think he hated that term. It's good if you knew him as a travel host and you didn't realize that, you know, he was a chef before that. So it's good on so many levels. Now, again, I'm a nut about Bourdain, absolutely love him. So for me, I bought the documentary on Prime because it was worth the money to me and I'm going to watch it more than once. And should it start a conversation? It absolutely should start a conversation because to me, if you watch this um, with somebody, it's going to start a conversation. It should start a conversation about mental health. It should start a conversation about addiction. It should start a conversation about so many things that are okay to talk about. Um, and I think that's really, really important because the, the one thing you get out of it is that there were things that he probably should have talked about. And he got into therapy near the very end of his life, which may have unfortunately been too late. But there's such a stigma attached to mental health and, and issues like that, that, you know, th there shouldn't be a stigma to it. Um, but unfortunately, there there is... And I guess that's the other thing that we should take from this documentary is that it's okay to talk about this stuff. And I've said it before, um, and I'm going to say this again over and over because I do want this to be a constant theme of the podcast. You know, we do drink spirits. We drink a lot of spirits on this. And sometimes these episodes might go off the rails because we drink a lot. 
if you're out there and you're thinking like, you know what, maybe I'm kind of losing control of this and the spirits are controlling me more than I'm controlling the spirits. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to stop. It's okay to reach out to people who can deal with this and get some treatment or, you know, take a week, a month, a couple months or, or quit drinking altogether. If you have a problem, there's nothing shameful in that. There's nothing quitter about that. Please. It's, it's a real thing and there's nothing wrong with that. Every now and then I've got to shut it down for a little bit because I feel like I don't control it. It controls me. If you're out there and you are depressed, if you are lonely, if it's 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night and you're all alone and you're feeling a little screwy, like something's not right in your universe, and you need somebody to talk to, email me, rich, not rich, rbeams1219 at gmail.com or thespiritsguide89 at gmail.com. Reach out. Um I'm not a therapist, you know, I don't have the professional to deal with it, but I can be a friend, I can be an ear, and I can maybe help direct you to some programs, you know, that if you need somebody to talk to, there's nothing wrong with it, um, there's no shame in it, and, you know, I guess that's the, the other thing we take out of this documentary is before it gets too late to do something about it, just reach out, um, we're all humans here. We're building a family and we're building a community here with the Spirits Guide that, yeah, it's drinking. Yeah, it's it's education and history and stories of alcohol. And, yes, it's, it's the movies we watch and the shows we watch and the books we read and the music we listen to. But it's also about human connections and all of us kind of being bonded together as humans. That's kind of my wrap. I want to read a couple of quotes from Bourdain um, that I just found very kind of poignant. Uh, and this is how I'll wrap it up. Uh, I got these two off the line. This one is from Anthony Bourdain. And it's, again, after you watch the documentary, this becomes a lot more poignant. Um, and I don't know when this quote was taken from, but it is his. And it reads, I will never be young again or any younger than I am today. I will never be faster or more flexible. I will never win comp competitions against 22-year-old wrestlers in my weight class. I will never be a black belt. None of these things will happen, but none of that matters anymore. Um, and to me, that's more about letting go of some of those trappings of youth that you know we sometimes don't want to let go of as we get older. Um, and I kind of take from that of like, as he progressed in his life, like it's okay to realize like you can't wrestle 22 year olds anymore. Um, it's okay to be who you are in the place that you are in. Um, and really this one sums up so much to me about Roadrunner and the story of him within that sort of roadrunner thing. And this was another great quote. And it reads, I've mutated into something. I don't really know what it is I do for a living. I'm having fun doing it, though, whatever it is. You know, writing and bouncing around the world and either writing about it or making television about it. But I like to think of myself as a chef, only in the sense that, you know, I spent 28 years in the business. 
And certainly my point of view, the way I look at the world is always going to come from there. And I found this quote after I had, you know, watched the documentary a couple of times. And I remember watching it with somebody. And as I was going through it, I just kept saying like, yeah, he's a travel guy right there. But in his heart of heart, he's, he's a chef. This is how he knows how to function. And I get that because to me, I'm always just a bartender. That's that's what I am at, at heart and by nature. So like I got that sort of perspective and it's a very sort of interesting way uh, to kind of hear that from Bourdain. I'm going to wrap up here and then there's going to be a little sort of bonus thing at the end. Please indulge me on it. It's, I guess, my sort of narcissistic fantasies and delusions of grandeur that I'm a, a writer, but there's a piece that I wrote as I was preparing to do this that I guess I just want to get and I'm on tape. Um, I don't know to prove that I did it. Whew. Here we are. We've made it through this sort of back-to-back bookend Anthony Bourdain thing. None the worse for where I guess, you know, I drank a lot of gin enjoyed doing this i've enjoyed bringing this to you guys this is awesome thank you guys so much uh for listening and then from here we're gonna start to do some some really cool fun stuff so one more sip of gin read my piece and then uh we'll be out i'll talk to you guys soon thank you guys so much again if you need help reach out uh i love you all cheers I think I figured something out about Anthony and I guess about myself, about why he loved music and books and movies so much. There is a definite beginning, middle, and ultimately an ending. Hell, even in the restaurant world, there is a beginning, middle, and ending to each day, to each shift. It breaks the world up into pieces, giving the mind a break. For people like him, us, whose lives are an open book. It's a never-ending story that can be mentally exhausting way to live. Imagine reading a book. The book has a cover. You open it up and you read the inside cover and the premise of the story sounds interesting so you dive in. The plot is full of twists and turns, lots of ups and downs. You keep reading, day after day, year after year, page after page, but you never seem to get any closer to the end. In fact, there doesn't seem to be any satisfactory way that this story can end or will end. In books and movies, there is always an ending. There is a resolution, whether we like it or not. There is always an ending. Even songs have endings. In the restaurant business, each day is a beginning. You turn the lights on, clock in, and set about establishing the characters of the story. Who is working today? Then you set the plot. Is it a slow Monday, therefore specials to flush out the leftovers from the weekend and cleaning projects? Or are we preparing for a game day or a pre-show crowd? Next, the action. Customers come in and the story unfolds. Seating people, taking orders, making drinks, and cooking food and doing dishes all form the day's plot. Finally, there is a resolution. It's the breakdown and cleanup. For some, it's the counting of money. Sometimes, just like the movies... There is a sequence of reflection of the life, of the story we've just experienced in the past few hours. 
As the credits roll, the book closes, and the song ends, we go home. We did it. We accomplished something. It's over for the moment. No bartender, server, or cook can handle being straight out for an indefinite amount of time. Maybe it can be done for six hours. Maybe eight. Maybe 12. But not much longer than that. To do it any longer becomes just too overwhelming. The body may be able to, but the mind will certainly crack after a certain amount of time. Not everybody can do what we can do in in the restaurant business, but even we can only do it for short bursts. I remember comforting myself sometimes during these rush periods by reminding myself that this can't go on forever, that we have to, by law, close at some point, and these people will have to leave eventually. We all have the same nightmares if you talk to restaurant people. There are more customers that we can get to. Tickets keep spewing out of the printer. It's always just 20 minutes to last call. People say that it happens because you're working too much. I think the truth is that we're just afraid that it won't end and there is no resolution and we will be stuck in the weeds forever. We need that break. To function at that level takes a lot out of you and we need to reset so that we can do it again the next day. Unfortunately, life doesn't work that way. Movies, books, and music provide escapes, but they're not real. We don't always think about what happens to the character after the credit roll or after the book ends. We don't think about when a song actually ends when it fades out on the radio. The only things we know for sure are when the song ends abruptly or the character in the story dies. Beyond that, I guess, we just assume that they go on and on and on and on. The downside of all of that is that life doesn't work like a restaurant or a movie or a song or a book. There are no endings. There are no breaks. There's no real resolutions. It's one long shift, a never-ending book or movie. It's the day shift that you come in hungover for and the night shift just called out. Too much of anything can be just enough, but eventually it can just become too much. That's why we like our movies, our books, our music, and our shifts. It allows us the escape and the ability to break things down into pieces that not only do we understand, but that we can also feel as if we have some sort of control over it. We need endings and we need resolutions. We don't always need to know what the ending will be, just that there is one. Life can't do that for us, though, at least not while we're alive. We don't know how the story will end or even when. We just know that it will, somehow, someday. That is a daunting thought that can take over you. I've seen cooks and bartenders under terrible management conditions lose their shit. Maybe it's because they've worked four doubles in a row. Maybe it's that they've been in the same place too long and need to grow beyond it. And maybe, just maybe, they have just hit that point where they're just sick of it all and they just are plain done. Now, some throw things in their breakdown. Some things scream at coworkers and customers who don't deserve it. And some quietly just walk off the bar or out of the kitchen, go outside for a cigarette, and they never come back. We never know what happened to them. We never get to ask them about what made them crack or walk out. We are only left with questions and memories, good or bad, of the time spent together and the hope. The hope that wherever they walked into is better than where they walked out of, at least for them, and that they are okay wherever they are.